welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and today, for episode two of Lens Week, we've got Alex Nelson of Zero Optic. Um, you may know Alex from uh, having made the lenses for um, Zack Snyder's new film, uh, Army of the Dead, those rehoused um, Canon FDs, the Dream Lens, the 0.9550, as well as a 35, um, you know, those Canon rangefinder lenses. Um, he's also made uh, industrial strength PL um, pinhole lenses. He's also rehoused uh, my favorite sort of vintage lenses, the Nikkor Primes. I own a set, not of his, of the originals. Um, Alex is, is awesome. Uh, this podcast, we you're going to love it. Um, we talk about photography, real specific nerdy lens things. Um, he, you know, kind of shares some industry secrets, so to speak. Uh, I've noticed all the lens guys are real tight-lipped, so I don't mean to say he actually does, but really interesting stuff that I don't think the average person or even the average DP would know. Um, you know, we talk about the psychology of photography. This is another, you know, sort of acquaintance friend of mine, so we kind of uh, hit it off easily. You know, it's nice when the person you're talking to um, you already have sort of a, a relationship or rapport. It's easier to chat. Um, we'll definitely have Alex back on outside of Lens Week, but or Lens Month. Did I say Lens Week at the beginning? Whatever, it's Lens Month. Um, but yeah, so you're going to love this one. Uh, so without further ado, here's my conversation with Alex Nelson of Zero Optic. So for to start, for people who don't know, um, you're not a lens... Are you, would you call, consider yourself a lens manufacturer or are you a, like a housing manufacturer? Uh, we are definitely just a housing manufacturer. Uh, we, we don't make glass from scratch. Um, I mean, the, the, the zero optic is a, is a very literal sort of uh, thing. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's all um, mechanical design and, and uh, certainly every part of the mechanical uh, housing is manufactured either from scratch or or to our sort of specifications. So we, we lean into manufacturing that, but less so the, the optics themselves. And what uh, what got you started in? Because it's it's a pretty specific niche to get into, albeit one that's awesome. Like that's why I'm doing Lens Month because I just want to learn more about it. But yeah, um, I mean, I don't have a very like clean story like i i went to film school oh, who does um, right <laughs> nobody nobody ends up where they plan to uh but um yeah I, I went to film school um expecting to to pursue cinematography um and and was like very much headed on that path i i interned at panavision new york when i was in college um in New York, you can join the union if you take like a test. You don't have to do the whole like, oh, wow. roster thing. Um, and so studied for that like a madman, took the AC exam for, for Local 600, worked at rental houses, sort of like like very hardcore down, like I'm gonna just like work my way up through the camera department. Um, and I was working at um, TCS in New York as a prep tech and it was about the same time that like people were starting to talk about like cook speed pancros um we had a set there it hadn't even been rehoused it was still just like oh you could 
you could put like a PL adapter onto an ARRI standard mount and like you can shoot with these weird old little sort of gems. Um, and uh, like super baltars weren't even a thing, but like I remember like TLS started doing the rehousings for the cooks. Um, PNS Technic was doing stuff like that. I remember PNS Technic, especially during the uh, 35 millimeter adapter days. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think that more than anything, like that was sort of the, um, that was almost hotter than vintage lenses at that point. It was like, yeah, you get your DVX 100 and you get like the mini 35 or whatever, get your Nikon lenses and yeah. Um, You know what's stupid, not to interrupt your story, but just because you lit up when I said this. I had an XL2, which had that EF adapter that they made, and it was just a little credit card looking thing. And uh, I did not buy it because I was like, I got these cool real movie lenses. Why would I want to put EF glass on this? Right, exactly. I remember that adapter. Like, the goddamn, the XL2 was such a cool, cool camera. I still have it. Do you? Yeah, the tape deck doesn't work, I don't think. But I was using that uh, hard drive adapter that was like, Let's oh talk about God. non-locking connectors. It was a USB to Firewire, like USB A mini to Firewire. Was it, it was, the one it was that called, looked like a fat um, iPod? Like it yep, had like uh, the, yeah. the Firestore FS5 or something like that. Yeah, five hundred gig or so. The the hot the hot thing after the Firestore was like the Nano Flash. It's like now now you've got this little like baby thing. Oh my God. Dude, the the things we went through to fucking make <laughs> to to be like quote unquote real filmmakers. <laughs> it was nuts. Like it, especially yeah, like everything was so you know, now you have like a, a giant touchscreen panel that'll show you waveforms and all that. These things they half of them didn't even have screens, or if they did, it you got like three lines of text. And it's just like, mm-hmm. is it recording? What is it recording? And like what's the runtime? Like none of this, like, oh, like let's pick focus over here. It's like, it's, it's so crazy. I remember the XL2 had uh, zebras and that was mm-hmm. incredible. I was, yeah. I was, that was cheat code mode right there. <laughs> I had the, the um, XLR inputs and everything. Yep. That was, yeah. But that, that wheel selector that had all the, I should, honestly, I should, it's at my mom's house in Nevada, but uh I should have her send her out. She's going to make me go get it for sure. But I'm going <laughs> to, um, but I should go get that thing and just like, you know what? That would be cool. We put, we put, we make an adapter for it and see uh, what could you put on that? Because yeah, I know you can't, what, like a, was it, it was XL now. One third inch. Shit. Uh, one third inch. One third. So ooh, you'd almost want to get like super 16 lenses or something for that. Yeah. And that, I bet the handle would go past the, uh, the yeah, lens. exactly. And you have this little like Schneider Prime from the seventies. Yeah, that'd be dope. That'd be really cool. That would be cool. All right, I'm gonna make that a project then. We'll, <laughs> we can we can go halvesies on that one. That'd be so yeah, cool. Because I know that I I've been like I've been thinking like oh it would be cool to to put the XL lenses on something, but mm-hmm. there's you can't adapt that to anything. No, and it's I mean all of that stuff is like fly by wire. So trying to yeah. trying to like rebuild it into something mechanical would be an absolute nightmare. Uh your half true. The twenty X was um wire, the sixteen was manual, which is why I bought really? it. Yeah. Mm. Because you could you could snap zoom a lot harder. Um <laughs> and the fo- yeah. and just like the focus you could ride a little better because it had the little yeah. knob sticking out, you know. 
Um, anyway, complete detour. So you're working at TLS. <laughs> oh, working at TCS. Or TCS, uh, sorry. TLS is in the UK. Um, but working at TCS as a, a prep tech in New York, and they bought um, a CNC mill because I'd, I'd been sort of like harping on like, you know, it'd be really cool if, we, if like TCS could become like the Claremont camera of the East Coast, like making custom bracketry and boxes and stuff. And so they they finally relented. They bought this, this pretty beefy CNC milling machine um, with all the bells and whistles. And I basically spent three months just like learning how to machine stuff from YouTube videos, um, nice. which is crazy dangerous because like oh, if you sure, don't bro. know what you're doing, those things are... You know, the, the tool is spinning at like 12,000 RPM and you have to program exactly where it needs to go in 3D space. Everyone thinks CNC mills, you just, you know, it's like a magic box that just like delivers your finished parts to you. Um, it's the most dangerous thing you could possibly play with if you don't know what you're doing. Um, and there were a few times where, you know, you plug in the coordinates wrong and it just drives an end mill straight into like the vice and then snaps you know a quarter inch piece of steel in half and sends it flying across the room um but eventually got a handle on that and and you know so i wanted to see like what i could do with it like i i was a prep tech i couldn't afford to get you know tls to rehouse lenses for me i couldn't afford to get you know anybody to do that kind of thing um so i wanted to see if i could sort of manage it um and so they also had this old, old manual lathe from like World War II in the same like room that the CNC mill was in. So I started like going in on weekends, turning down massive chunks of metal uh, manually on this lathe, and then doing like all the little sort of like milling operations on the on the CNC mill. Um, never really, I don't think I finished anything on that, but it was it was really really good sort of background. Um, for designing stuff, because when you're designing anything that needs to be made out of metal, you have to know sort of what your constraints are. You have to know, for example, that like, you know, if you have uh, like a corner, um, the inside of the corner can't be a hard 90 degree angle. Like there's gonna be a radius because it's being cut with something that's spinning. Mm. And so just being able to sort of go into a design with that kind of background and, and having to plan through every step, like how is someone going to cut this out of a piece of metal um, was huge because it'd be so easy to, to just be like, oh, you know, these are the shapes it has to be. This is where everything needs to sit. And then you go to a machinist and they tell you, I, this is impossible to make. Um, so, but it started playing with lenses, uh, started developing. Um, I really wanted to, to shoot with a pinhole lens at the time. Um, and the Epic had just come out, which is like the first cine camera that could, that could do like really crazy ISO. Yeah. Um, and so wanted to see basically, could you shoot pinhole footage at like 24 frames? Cause normally that's like time exposure kind of stuff. You know, you just, you gotta go for a few seconds. Um, in some cases, and like a year. Have you ever? Yeah, I'm sure you've seen. I've those, seen those. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, like the all the paths of the sun going across the the frame. Yeah. Um, and it seemed like that'd be a really cool sort of project. It's you know, maybe a little more accessible than, than building an all out like lens housing. Um, and so it just sort of started playing with lenses and um, and then at some point 
decided it was time to uh, to move to LA, and I was kind of over set work. Um, I mean, I I worked as an AC on a like, day plate on movies and commercials and TV shows and stuff, and it was just grueling. I mean, I I did like some of the pre tape stuff, for example, for um, Saturday Night Live, mm. and you know, call time is like five o'clock in the morning somewhere. You shoot all day long, no, no meal breaks. And then, um, I think you get like maybe an hour or two break in the evening and then you shoot till like three o'clock the next morning. Um, I was like, I can't, I don't, I don't have the stamina for this. Well, I'm sure SNL is a, is a like kind of a unique case. No, I mean, it, they're all, I mean, I know all jobs are kind of similar, but that's gotta be, they are notorious for being, uh, a, a, an aggressive schedule. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, you get paid well. Like, even even as, like, a loader or a second on that, you know, it'd just be like, cool, I did, like, a day and a half of work, and $800 just showed up in my bank account. Like, that, yeah. that's okay. Um, but moved out to L.A., and I didn't have sort of the, the freelance network out here. So <clears throat> I hit up a bunch of different rental houses, um, and just sort of on a whim, I was like, you know, I'll, I'll drop off like a cover letter and do close lenses. I don't think they had anything advertised, but, um, went to Chatsworth was like, left something at the front desk and, um, got a call from Paul Duclos, uh, like a week later or something asking if, uh, if I wanted to be like their sort of engineer designing mount conversions and whatever adapters, uh, and the, the competing offer was from Keslo to be a prep tech for like another four years or something. It's just like, that's, it's not a hard choice. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So, um, I spent four years at Duclos designing a lot of mount conversions, uh, step up rings, um, uh, nothing that was quite like a full on rehousing, but, but a lot of stuff that was sort of in that vein, um, and getting to take apart lenses from every manufacturer, which was invaluable. Cause you know, like when I was working on the, the first rehousing project for zero optic, which was Baltars, I was still working at Duclos and I would run into like a little design challenge and I could go, you know, I could look at the, the safe at Duclos and see, you know, how did Zeiss and Ingenue and Canon and, you know, whoever else work out that same challenge. Like what did, you know, what was their solution? And just sort of cherry pick what the best options were um, so that, yeah, when it, when, you know, it was time to sort of go full time with Zero Optic, there was a pretty diverse arsenal to draw on in terms of um, design approaches or, or little sort of like mechanical engineering solutions. So it's a, that, a very weird and indirect path. Yeah, I mean, that's... Like I said, everyone's got their own. I, I certainly didn't take a see. I think a lot of people can get distracted, or at least you stayed in the sort of lane. I ended up, yeah. uh, I ended up as a photographer for Red Bull for a handful of years, and I was like, I'm going to work for this company forever because it was like, you know, it's a cool company to work for. And then they were like, actually, we're done with freelancers, and I was like, oh no! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like it was like me and the entire uh, uh, like warehouse team in Arizona all just oh got canned God. at the same time. And we were just like, oh, well, looks like I got to go back to my original plan because I was in film school. And like, yeah. that was a tough, you know, I look back on it. It was probably, it was an excellent experience for me, but it definitely took the past five years 
today to even get back to a position where like anyone would take me serious. I, I didn't have a reel. I had a bunch of photos right. of like skydivers and motocross people and shit. <laughs> yeah. It's funny though. Cause I was just talking to someone yesterday about like, from my experience, it takes about five years to kind of like get to something. Like if you like really set your mind to it, be like, yeah, like, you know, if you move to a new city or you sort of take a new like career path, it's like five years till you, you start to like see the results or start to be like, okay, I've, I've hit that. And like, now I can start to build on this. Yeah, it is. It, I, you know, you kind of think it's funny because it sounds like a lot of time, but you do kind of think of life in four year chunks, you know, your middle yeah. school, your high school, your college, post college, whatever. It's all four to five year chunks. So maybe that's yeah. just a natural progression of things. Yeah, which is kind of exciting, right? Because like if you if you find you're in something that's like just not clicking right, you know, worst case scenario, it'll be. You know, if you start on another path, it'll be five years before, like, you know, you're sort of better established there and can, can see how that one fits. Yeah. Yeah. Because especially, too, you don't have to think of it as like, oh, I wasted a year. It's like, no, you only right. wasted a year. Like, yeah, luckily exactly. you got out quick or else you would have been five <laughs> yeah. years down and blew it. It, it really sucked. Um, so the so the pinhole lens was the first zero optic. <laughs> Exactly, which you know that was that was the most literal sort of uh, thing. It was something um, when I was still sort of hoping to make a career in cinematography, you know, as a cinematographer rather. Um, I really loved the idea of having a lens that could sort of reduce a scene down to just like light and form and motion. Um, mm -hmm. and, and not be so concerned with like the details and you know how many K's were captured in a frame. Um, and I really wanted to shoot um, sort of an architectural piece, just you know, because there's so many kind of parallels between architecture and, and film and cinematography in terms of light and space and, and um, form and you know how it, you know, they're both very public kind of uh, expressions. And so I started sort of just like, I think doing what a lot of people do, which is, you know, you get like some aluminum foil and you like poke a little hole in it and just kind of like tape that to a front cap or a port cap or something. Um, but I couldn't leave that alone and, and had to see, you know, like if I can really just go like balls out on this, if I, if I see like how insane you can make a pinhole, what would that look like? You know, would it be, you know, if, if it's PL mounted and it's got like a matte box sort of front diameter, a standard front diameter, um, you know, what could you do with that? Um, and I even made one that technically had uh, like a variable sort of pinhole. So it was, it oh, was cool. an iris that could close completely down to zero. And so you could just sort of, you could make it as large or as small as you wanted to. Um, and just sort of, you know, played with that. Um, and you know, off and on, I think I made, I sold one while I was still in New York. And then after I'd been working at Duplos for a couple of years, um, I had more people kind of like getting in touch every now and again, because they'd find like an old Instagram post or a blog post I'd done. It's like, hey, are you, you still selling those? And so I went to Paul Duclos and I said, you know, I designed this thing when I was still working in New York and I'm getting more and more requests for it. Do you mind if I sort of do this on the side? Um, and he had no problem with it. In fact, uh, Duplos ended up buying half of the first batch for, for resale. That's cool. 
So it was, yeah, that was, you know, it was uh, really just a sort of an experiment to see if anyone would buy just an insanely like over-engineered pinhole lens, um, how much they'd pay for it and, and sort of like what the, you know, that was the first thing that I sort of ended up having machined on my own because I've done a lot of stuff with Duplos, um, but hadn't, hadn't done my own kind of manufacturing project. So yeah, that, that was the, I think it was just one Instagram post that kind of launched that. It is, it is wild how like, I don't know. I don't know if, if it happens so much anymore, but I do know at first, like I definitely got a bunch of jobs off Instagram. <laughs> oh now, yeah. Now I don't know. Now I think it kind of went, it's too popular now or whatever. Like it's too much of a thing that you advertise on. Right. Versus like a place to share stuff. Did you see, uh, did you see the lens deployed on anything particularly cool or was it just a lot of people like, uh, doing like tech, tech demos and stuff? It's interesting. Cause it, they're, it feels like, um, to the extent that anyone actually paid attention to it, it feels like a very sort of polarizing thing because there were uh, there were people who looked at it and said, "That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard." Like, <laughs> sure. it's, yeah, I, the the price was fifteen hundred dollars, and there were people who very rightly were just like, "I can buy actual glass lenses for like half of that, so why why would I buy this?" Um, but then there were also a lot of people who like saw that and we're just like, I have so many ideas for this. This like, you could shoot this, you could bring it on that. I, I haven't seen, um, or, or rather I should say, not many people who have them have shared what they've shot um, with me anyway, but it seems like the people who have bought them are incredibly enthusiastic. Um, they, they just like grab onto it. And more recently, um, I know the second season of Euphoria took one, and um, almost immediately after that, we had Panavision like get in touch and ask if we had any more for sale. So it's, it's slowly kind of like people are starting to see maybe the the value or the purpose of it because um, it does it, it it generates an image that like you just can't get any other way. Um, it's more impressionistic. It's more sort of. Uh, unusual than something you could do in post or that you could do in camera any other way. Yeah. I remember uh, when we had first met at, cause I remember we actually had met on Instagram. I think it was during the year of black and white for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I'm about to go back to like when I, cause man, I am excited to get back out in the world and take pictures again. Cause right. that was making me so happy. And now like how many times can you take a picture of the light coming through the window? You know, um, <laughs> like here's my dusty shelf. Yeah, the dumpster outside. Uh, yeah. But I remember um, at uh, Cinegear coming up, and I'm like, I want to write an article about these things, and I still do. So we'll have to, because uh, I think it would be interesting to do, like, because a lot of my earlier work was with music videos and fashion stuff. I think it could be a real interesting, like, impressionistic fashion. You know, you wouldn't necessarily see the clothes in any <laughs> appreciable right. detail, but it would be maybe like a, like by the beach, you know? Yeah, well, one thing I've, I have yet to see, which I I was so excited to see if anyone would do this, um, isn't like a proper like studio shoot, like controlled lighting. You would need some bright, bright lights. We can um, try it at Stray. But get like, you know, get a couple 20Ks, just roast the shit out of an actor um, and see what you could get with that. Because it, it gets this great um, sort of like blooming effect. It almost looks like old like 
16 stock before they really dialed in like the anti-hellation backing. Yeah. Um, and it's, it is a lot sharper than I think anyone would guess. Like it isn't just like a blurry mess. You could, you know, if you're shooting like out on the street, you can read street signs, you can read, you know, um, marquees or something. It's, it's got an interesting vibe to it. And it's, uh, in basically everything's in focus. Everything's in focus. And we have legitimately had people ask how you focus it or they think something's <laughs> wrong, which is, you know, then, then you gotta, you gotta chat it through it. You're gonna treat it like a cell phone. Treat it like a cell phone. But it's, I mean, it does have interchangeable pinholes. So you basically just have to decide, like, do I want to prioritize exposure or do I want to prioritize essentially resolution? Because mm. um, you could use a really, really tiny pinhole. Um, the the smallest one is f three fifty. Casual, ca you know, super casual. Even even on a super sensitive camera, you really got to jack the ISO up and uh, be okay with some noise. But um, but you know that you'll you'll be able to like recognize people's faces with that. It's it's pretty damn sharp. Or you can go to the other end. The the widest aperture is 87.5, which is still no joke, but <laughs> buys you a, a couple stops. Yeah. Did, and so from there, you, I think, I don't know if this is correct, but then did you jump straight into like, wh why did Nikon become your, your pet project? It seems, cause I don't know anyone else who rehouses Nikon lenses. Um, that was, so that was actually the second rehousing project we did. The first one was original Bosch and Lone Baltars. Oh, right, right, and right, right. Then um, and I was still working at, at Duclos when, when I was making and selling those. Um, and Mark LaFleur at Old Fast Glass got in touch. I think I'd maybe commented on a post of his uh, on Instagram. Instagram is a massive sort of thread running through all of this. <laughs> and uh, so we, ended up, we, we got drinks, and he was just like, someone's got to do Nikon AIS lenses. Like, they're gorgeous. You know, the, that was the... Like every photojournalist in the seventies and eighties had Nikon on them. Um, like there That's where I got my option. set. My uncle, Is my it? uncle was a photojournalist, and so I've got his F two in the set. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't know how many people we've had who are just like, you know, these are my dads, these are my granddads. You know, this is they're they're heirlooms in a way that nothing else we rehouse ever could be. Um, and and I'd grown up with Nikon. My my dad shot Nikon. Um, as an architect, he would document his uh, his projects with an F2 and a 24 mil 2.8. And so I was just like, yeah, this, that sounds great. It's, you know, it's, a, it's an actual gap in the market. I didn't want to do, like, the goal was never for Zero Optic to just be TLS or PNS Technic in Los Angeles. It was, you know, I wanted to do projects that maybe no one else was doing or no one else had thought of. Um, and so Nikon felt like a really good follow-up to uh, to the original Baltars um, and left a lot of room to sort of play with the aesthetic of the housing too. Yeah, because that is another thing that I really uh, like about Yuri housings is they're very, uh, they're very pretty. The attention to detail <laughs> there you. is not uh, unnoticed. Which, uh, to be honest, that's, that's almost the point of it for me. Like, I, I essentially just taught myself optomechanical engineering simply so I could play with industrial design. Because, um, I mean, that's that's the fun part. That's the part everybody sees. No one, no one sees all the tricky, intricate bits inside. They just know that, you know, the anodizing looks just right. The paint fill is, you know, 
just like has this perfect sort of like concave situation going on. That's, you know, that's where you really get to sort of like invest a lot of pride. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's, I, I think there's a, a tendency for sort of like formally trained engineers to, to check off all the boxes mechanically and then be like, okay, it does the thing it's supposed to. We don't need to make it look like anything. It just, it needs to sort of like keep water and dust and whatever else out. Um, but that's, that's where, you know, that's where you get to sort of form the identity of the project and also of the company. Like that's, that's where you get to like really put your stamp on it. So it, it feels like a, a missed opportunity if you just sort of ignore it. Yeah. Yeah. That was actually something Matthew was saying. He was like, you know, the engineers, they don't necessarily know how to make a, a not a pretty lens. I'm now I'm putting words in his mouth, but like <laughs> they, they know how to, they know how to make the perfect lens. And then that's, right. the, that's the end goal. Cause we were talking about like, Oh, if someone wanted to, if Canon wanted to go back and make the K 35s, like no one who works at Canon knows how that was made or anything. So that's not happening. Right. And they're not going to redo the FDs cause they don't make those anymore either. Yeah, and, and in many cases, they probably couldn't. Um, materials have changed. Technology has changed. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's also just a fact that engineers, like, they, there's no room sort of, like, psychologically for flaws, especially deliberate flaws. Um, you know, you're trying to sort of, like, hit the peak of every graph in, in the software you're using. It's like, you know, how, how good can MTF be and how... You know, how much can we reduce coma and spherical aberration and chromatic aberration? And so, which I can sort of appreciate because, you know, it's a lot easier to aim for, like, being the best. If you aim for what is essentially mediocrity, like, what is the baseline there? Like, what, do you, what, what is, what's just, what looks like shit and what is pretty? Um, and that's not something that they teach engineers. So uh, <laughs> they either have to have faith in their clients, which they usually don't. Um, no. Or they just have to come up with some arbitrary kind of, you know, I don't know, like we, we sort of like turned the perfection down. Is this what you guys wanted? Like, and it blooms kind of when you focus. Um, well, that was that was something I was saying was like, I just got that uh, that's that Seconic color meter, the, the C800. Right. So I've just been going around metering the hell out of everything. I've got I've got a profile for every light, every version of sun, every patch of shade. And, uh, you know, it's got the SSI that the Academy made, the Spectral Similarity Index. Yeah. Where instead of comparing, um, like, TCLI or, or CRI, which is comparing to a target, SSI just compares one light against a known spectrum, a known light source. So, like, if you want, mm -hmm. if you have a, a tungsten LED, whatever, a tungsten-colored LED, and you want to compare it to a real LED, you can see how close it is, and then you can make your judgment from there. I'm like... My idea was they make one of those for lenses because, again, Matthew was saying like, oh, there's no there's no you can have a perfect lens on it with the charts, but then they all look different. There's no right. you can't match them like that. I was like, there's got to be a way for like. And I think this is the thing that the Internet would love is if you could go like, <laughs> oh, if you buy, of course, you know, this is the this is the made up dream that everyone has. Right. Like if you go on eBay and get this very specific uh, uh, whatever lens from the 60s it looks exactly like a cook s4 yep which i you know i think the it really jumped the shark when it came to k35s because k35s right. are incredibly scarce and so everyone was looking for like what's a thing 
that looks like the K35, but doesn't cost a quarter of a million dollars, and you can actually like purchase someplace. Um, yeah, at this point, I don't know how many. I mean, certainly the FDs are like the most direct kind of um, substitute. But how many, you know, detuned Tokinas, Rokinons, whatever else, um, even Canon CNEs are being billed, and in some cases, like, very explicitly as, these are basically K35s, or we've done enough to this that, you know, it's supposed to be K35-like, um, which, you know, at its worst, it's just sort of disingenuous, and at its best is maybe... Know, sort of naive. Um, well, because the other thing too is like, what does that mean? What part right. of the K thirty five are you selling people? <laughs> exactly. Which, and if you look at K thirty fives, they're not strictly consistent. So no. it's, it's just it's, like it's all just a myth. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a myth that everybody buys into, and so that in a sense sort of makes it real. Yeah. Would you? How would you describe if you could now? Like this is goes against exactly what we were just saying, but like using Nikors as the example, like how would you, how would you sort of describe the, the characteristics of a Nikor versus a K35 or maybe like a modern Sigma, which I know is very mm. neutral. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I think you could make sort of broad statements. Um, Cause at the very least you can boil like each company down or each product line, at least down to essentially the priorities that, they had for that because mm. um, I mean ev like every different lens manufacturer it, you know they can all be sort of like striving for the perfect lens but the individual sort of characteristics or parameters that they prioritize will ultimately generate fundamentally different products and so you can see you know what Canon was doing in the 70s and 80s versus what Nikon was doing in the 70s and 80s um, and even though within like the FD set, there might not be consistency from one focal length to the next, broadly you can say, like, all right, they, they tended to have fairly warm flares. Um, Canon at the time was kind of a second tier manufacturer. Um, you know, they were, they were hoping to be runner up to Nikon. Um, and so they were throwing a lot of stuff at the wall to see what would stick. Um, they were doing a lot of really weird stuff with A-spheres that was, I'd say, like, largely successful, but introduced some weird kind of funkiness into some of their lenses. You said um, aspherical elements? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, for example, like the 24 1.4, uh, something we see a lot is that there's this really crucial uh, aspherical doublet in the rear group, and they clearly had a tough time cementing that perfectly. So if you project one of those lenses, it'll be flat and symmetrical, but you'll see it looks sort of decentered. Like if you throw focus out a little bit, you'll see it'll like smear to one side or like a little bit down. Hmm. Um, and that was a result of them just sort of struggling to implement A-spheres in a, in a reliable way for what was ultimately a consumer grade product. Um, <clears throat> Nikon, was top of the heap they didn't really need to try anything they didn't have to be as scrappy and so they ended up putting out a lot of lenses that were just like just very good um you know they didn't have a crazy fast 24 it was a lot of like f2s you know they kind of had the 
you know, the basic fast, like 35, fast 50, fast 85, but everything else was just meant to be very high performing. Um, and so you tend to see, especially relative to like FDs or K35s, icons tend to be like pretty clean, pretty neutral. Um, but with a, in, essentially character that, you know, the manufacturing processes of the time kind of gave them, you know, whatever the coding technology was at the time, the polishing technology, and again, just the parameters of building consumer grade lenses, you know, that have to hit a certain price point. Um, you see that sort of bring a little more like gentleness to the image than, than ultra modern stuff than, you know, say Sigma's. Um, but I'd say it's, you know, if you were going to shoot uh, a spot and you're a little bit worried what like the agency is going to think about it, like those are a safe bet. They're not going to look super sterile, but they're not going to throw any weird curveballs at you either. It's not going to like catch a light in a weird way and suddenly everything just like milks over and you get crazy like bubble flares across the frame. So mm. I think that's probably, those are the, the broad statements that you could apply to each of those sets. Um, and certainly focal length by focal length, you could, you could probably make more specific kind of judgments. One thing that I've noticed, you know, obviously as uh, in the, in the earlier days of DV and whatnot, sharpness and clarity were important because resolving power is pretty low. And now yeah. we've got, you know, and I've said this before, if, if anyone's curious about what camera they should buy, just whichever one you think looks the coolest, doesn't yeah. matter. It like, they're all amazing. It, you know, if you, if you think Fuji's cool, cause it's Fuji buy that. Cause I have an X-T3. It's amazing. You know, exactly. Um, but now everyone is going the other way and they're pushing against resolution. They're pu pushing against perfection because the sensor is so quote unquote perfect. Um, you know, the classic, like every DP under the sun, if given the option just goes Alexa mini cook S4 just yep. sends, sends that bit in. Um, do you, do you, do you think, what is it? What is, there's a good question. I don't know if you have a ton of experience with them, but what do you think it is about the cooks? Is it just sales salesmanship about the, the, the cook look, so to speak? Yeah. I mean, I, at the very least, there's a lot to be said for, uh, what people think maybe versus reality. Um, it was really interesting, actually. I don't know if you, um, heard about this, uh, this lens test that the, essentially the French version of the ASC put together, the, the AFC, um, but they did like a blind lens taste test. And I, I know it's screened at like Camera Homage. They had a screening uh, last winter, right before COVID. Um, and they, what they've done is they've taken like pretty much every lens they could get their hands on. Um, every, you know, it's vintage Panavision stuff. It's, um, anamorphic, spherical, super clean and modern, super funky from the 50s. And they shoot the same like three scenarios with all of them. And it's very clever. And then you've got a sheet and everything is just like labeled like one, two, three, four, five. You watch it like three times um, and they mix up the order. So you can't even be like, oh, like I remember I liked number one. It's like, no, now that's number 16. And so mm -hmm. if you still like it, you have to kind of like independently come up with that. And it was so interesting to see what people actually liked because, you know, I think there are so many DPs who, if given half a chance, would be like, yes, I want the 1950s Panavision anamorphics. Like I would 
I would shoot anything with those. I'd shoot a movie, a music video, a short film. Um, nobody liked that in the in the blind taste test. Nobody wanted that because they would do. The, I remember there was one scene. They're like panning across a window. There's someone walking, you know, in front of a window. Pan across it, and just everything went white right. to the point that like the entire screening room started laughing. It's like half the ASC board members were in there. Everyone just started laughing at this. And like, those are the auto panatars that are like so coveted and, you know, you couldn't rent them if you, if, you know, for love or money. Um, and what did everybody love? Master Primes and S4s. Yeah. <laughs> Clean, reliable, you know, nothing weird, nothing unexpected. It's not going to, it's not going to haze over if you have an unexpected lighting scenario. It's just, you can bank on them. Well, and that it is funny because like in, I kind of think about this a lot where we work in an industry that sell, you know, what, what's that quote? Like the only thing that you sell people is a memory, you know, <laughs> right? we bank on nostalgia, not with the internet anymore, but back in the day at least, uh, but we bank on nostalgia, but we work on specificity. And I think as artists, there's like kind of a weird middle ground where like, People want the old uh, Panavision um, anamorphics because we remember Star Wars or remember Escape from New York or whatever. And we remember that the movie, not necessarily the actual resolving power or look of it necessarily. Right. I think there, um, I remember reading in an on Malcolm Gladwell book um, that if if presented with the question, like, what kind of coffee, you know, would you like? Like, what, what, you know. What's the flavor that you'd like? What's the what's the texture? A lot of people say like really hearty, like dark roast, like something with a lot of like character and just but if you actually look at sales data, everybody wants the milkiest, sugariest, like Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Nobody buys the dark roast. And it's it's yeah. we see that all the time with, with uh stuff that gets sent in for rehousing. You know, someone will say, I want I want like late 70s FDs. I don't even want the later stuff. I want like the real weird stuff from the 70s, amber flares and kind of glowing. And, you know, so we'll rehouse them. We, you know, we, we recenter stuff, we recalibrate the optics, and then they'll, they'll project it at their favorite, you know, neighborhood rental house. And I'll say, it, it doesn't, it doesn't resolve that well in the corners. Like, we, we, it's, it's broken. Like, that is what you, that's what you wanted. That's that's, that's what like nineteen seventies. Yeah, like it's weird. That's you know that's why you shoot with it. It's not because the corners are tack sharp and it's it's super even. It's it's got a little funkiness to it. Um, so it's a very interesting sort of uh, tightrope to walk in that regard. Uh, you know, trying to manage expectations and also make sure that people are are sort of ordering what they genuinely want and not you know not getting something that's going to disappoint them. Yeah. So, uh, as, as much as you can walk me through like what, a, what you do for a rehousing. Cause you know, like, do you, are you able to find the, the specifications for each lens or do you have to like take it apart and memorize like distances and stuff? Like what, what is that whole, uh, process like? Um, whenever we can, I, I try to source, like original documentation, because um, obviously that that saves the most time. Most manufacturers are not that helpful. Um, sure. The Leica and Zeiss are probably the best because they're 
their whole sort of reputation is built on their incredible engineering. And so Zeiss, for everything they've ever made, they have really specific data sheets. Like this is, this is the size of the entrance pupil. This is where it sits like relative to this part of the lens. This is the exit pupil. Like stuff nobody needs to know, you know, the back focal length of the, you know, from the rear optical surface to the film plane. Um, you know, three people in the world need that information. Um, but we're one of them. Most yeah, companies you. don't provide that though. <laughs> um, or they'll say, you know, the, the really helpful stuff is, is knowing going into a lens, uh, you know, is it a floating element design or, um, or is it single cell? If it is a floating element design, what's moving? Um, cause that changes, you know, some stuff, uh, you just have like one little element that moves separate from everything else. And some stuff you have like three different optical groups all moving at different rates as you focus. So at least knowing what you're in for is really helpful, but more often than not, it just comes down to very, very careful disassembly and mm. notes and measuring. And um, so I, I can build a, an optical model of what we're going to rehouse and then put everything around it. Um, I mean, it would be agony if we, if we didn't have 3D modeling software because that makes it a hundred times easier than, than if, you know, if it was two dimensional or if that'd be like drawn out, we, we wouldn't be able to do half the stuff we do. Oh yeah. I can imagine. Do you, do you go through, I know you, um, you'll swap out the, uh, apertures, give them rounded mm -hmm. apertures. Uh, is there anything else that you tend to modify in any of these lenses or is that kind of a by, a by request only type thing or? Uh, we do that in everything. So we, we put circular apertures in everything um, because it's it's incredibly rare that anyone wants the original iris. Um, and for us, it's often just simpler to put a new iris in. Um, it's gotten to the point that we don't even, we, we use as little of the original housing as possible. Essentially, all we're taking is the glass and maybe a couple key sort of like metal components, you know, whatever it's like, you know, if there's uh, like a cell that holds several elements in one place in the correct relationship, if we can use it, we will. Um, but it's honestly just easier to, to start from scratch every time um, mm. because then we can control it. We can, you know, we can remachine something if we need to, or, or, you know, make something thinner, or bigger or whatever. And, and, you know, push and pull is needed where the more, original parts you have to deal with, the worse it is. Um, we've had people sort of under the impression, you know, prospective clients who will say, I, I, I don't want a whole rehousing. I just, you know, can't you just put a PL mount on this? And mm -hmm. a mount conversion is a million times harder and much more work and much more sort of like creative energy to pull off properly than just saying, nope, we'll just take the glass out, we'll put it in a new thing and now it works better. Yeah. Um, I did so many mount conversions at Duclos and trying to figure out how to get iris linkages around stuff that the original manufacturer built. It, it takes, it's, it's a lot of mental gymnastics that, you know, you, you can't do every day if you're trying to put out a set of, you know, eight, 10, 12 focal lengths. You're still, yeah, I mean, you still shoot photos. Is there a, um, what's your go-to lens? Cause I, I learned this uh, a couple days ago, no such thing as a favorite. <laughs> Right, but right. there is a most used. 
There is a most used. And there's definitely, I feel like it's the most used is never probably what you would describe as your favorite. No, it's the um, most utilitarian. Yeah, exactly. For me, it's the 27 pancake on the, uh, on the Nikon. Cause I can just throw that in my pocket. Yeah. It's not some big asshole lens, you know, and 27 is <laughs> a pretty good, uh, field of view for walking around town. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, for my stuff, like personally, I only shoot film mm. um, and not out of any sense of like hipster nostalgia. Um, I like I, I love scanning myself so it looks as clean as possible. I'm not looking for like fun, happy accidents. I mostly just want to capture as much like exposure information as possible. And film still cannot be beaten in that regard. Um, it's also more fun. It is more, yeah, I mean, you have to, like, you have to stay engaged, right? Like, it's so easy to just, like, hold down the shutter button and just spray and pray. But if you mm-hmm. have, like, 36 exposures to really consider, and, and then, you know, you have to wait a couple of weeks before you get to see what actually came out, you're going to you're gonna put a little more time and effort into it. Yeah. There's, there's uh, something to be said for, like, well, first, you, most used lens, then I'll get into that thought. Most used lens, uh... Probably, so I, I have three three cameras that I like just have in like console rotation. One is my Leica M3, one is my Nikon F2, and one is a Pentax 67. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, so it depends on the camera system. I have a really great 50 F2 for my Leica. Um, it's, a, it's a Summicron from the late 50s that was originally designed for the military. And so um, I don't know if you've shot much with like old school rangefinders, but the the close focus is always capped at something horrible, like three feet, oh, um, which even with a 50, it's not really close enough to do like proper, like portraiture. Like that's kind of, it's like waist up. Right. Um, but this, because it was designed for the military, they, they built in like a close focus ability. So it's, it's got this very clever design where you sort of like, pull the, um, the focus ring forward a little bit and then like click over into, into close focus mode. You have to put these little goggles on and now you can focus down to like 18 inches. Um, oh, cool. So it's, especially for a rangefinder, like it's the most versatile lens that you could possibly have in your pocket. And you know, it's, it's maybe an inch and a half long. Um, that's, cool. that, that's always on my M3. Uh, on my Nikon, it's, Probably an eighty-five-one-four, um, mm. and on the Pentax, they made a really gorgeous um, one hundred five two point four, which is with the larger format. It kind of has images that are very close to shooting with like an ultra-fast lens on full frame, like shooting with like a Noctilux or something. You end up with razor-thin depth of field and this really great sense of like separation between your subject and the background. Yeah, I've got a uh, RZ67 and the yeah. uh, the the Pro 2. It's it sucks cuz I have carried that around. I went to uh the oh, like when um Galaxy's Edge opened at Disneyland and uh <laughs> I had this image in my head where I wanted to shoot Galaxy's Edge with nobody in it at night. Yeah. So I had my RZ67. I got I uh, it was for my birthday. My uh, sister got us a hotel room because that was the only way you could get a um, pass to the to the park. Because either you won it in a lottery of some kind or something, or if you were staying at one of the resort hotels, they you just got one automatically. 
so we cheated the system and all and uh, our like call time or whatever was like 8 p.m., 9 p.m. And so all fucking day I had the RZ67 in my backpack with a little tripod. And just I got the photos. They look really cool, but uh like the you know, the Millennium Falcon at night just like it looks like from the movie, you know, cuz I'm under like a, I had to back up pretty far so it's like under a um you know, structure. Uh, yeah. So super cool, but yeah, my fucking shoulders were just cooked for the <laughs> But isn't that the thing, right? Like, like the Pentax is always, that's always the camera that I bring on like a 10 mile hike. Cause like, if you're going to go to like some crazy location or the end of the earth, like you want a big negative. So yeah. it's, it's almost like the scale. It's like, if I'm just going out to like walk around a city, it's the Leica. If I'm going to like a really, you know, interesting location that's still not that treacherous, it's the Nikon. If it's like, the ass end of British Columbia, the Pentax 67 is getting brought along. Like it's, you know, you're going to do it right. Yeah. I, the thing that sucked about the, the Disneyland thing was I've only got the 110, And so oh, I, I had yeah. to stand pretty far back, which is, you know, whatever equivalent, equivalent, like 55 or something, but, um, yeah. but, uh, on full frame, but, um, I want that 90. Every time I see like a photo that I really like, I'm like, Oh, would you shoot that on there? Like the 90. I'm like, and the 90 is a 2.8, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. The 110 is a 2.8, like, so I'm like used to that yeah. exposure. How I, I could never deal with the um, the waist level finder business. Like the the reversed motion really screws me up. Oh, dude, I that oof. So I got that camera in 2008. I probably got that figured out by 2014. <laughs> yeah. Now it's, it's muscle like memory, you, but oh god, it's fun though because like. You, whenever I show people that camera, because it looks ridiculous, you know, it's a massive, it's a oh, studio yeah. camera, and uh, but it's always fun to like pop the viewfinder open and show it to someone, and they always look in there, and, and it, nine times out of ten they go, it looks three D, yes, or yeah. or they'll say it looks real, and I'm like, it is real. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's literally, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's just something about that image that's so uh, compelling that makes shooting with it more fun. Yeah, yeah, I think in the same way that like just shooting analog is engaging, like shooting a huge negative like that um, just keeps you more engaged as well. The way, you know, shooting analog keeps you very engaged in sort of like making the image. Um, when you make the leap to medium format, it's just like heightened that much more, right? Like, you know, you have even fewer exposures to work with, um, but it's also, the, the medium is just so novel that you, you can't help but sort of like play with it more, sort of like look for more interesting things to do with it. Yeah, I always say like, you know, you know what I always say is I always say, I gotta stop doing that. <laughs> um, but with medium format, like because you've only got 10, maybe 12 exposures, that's more like if you have one idea, you shoot a roll of medium format. If you've got like yeah. an area, <laughs> then you can shoot 35. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I've um, been shooting a bunch at like the Venice Skate Park uh, over the yeah, last year or so. Those are like, some great shots. I appreciate it. It's it's the only place in LA that you can like basically do street photography. Um, yeah. I mean, now things are starting to thaw out a little bit, but like that's the only place where anyone's doing anything interesting, not wearing a mask, um, and so the first few times I was like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll shoot. 35 
Um, first it was with the Leica, then it was with the Nikon. Partially it's just like a focus pulling exercise. Um, I don't have any autofocus bodies. So it's just like, all right, like can I nail someone like doing a wild jump at like a pretty, you know, shallow stop and, and not have it look terrible. And then after a few of those trips, I was like, it's probably time to bust out the medium format and see see what's possible there and you know go even bigger and, and play with it because yeah I mean that it doesn't focus quickly um, it's really cumbersome and so you really have to have your wits about you and, and also yeah sort of like go into it with like a plan like this is this is where I'm going to try and get a couple shots because I know the light's going to be just right it's like the sunsets um, stuff like that and certainly well, if you do it enough you you get sort of the intuition you need to pull that off. Yeah, but that also goes back to what I was going to say earlier, which is um, I'm always looking for on my best days because uh, obviously I'm just as lazy as anyone else. But <laughs> on my best days, I'm always looking for activities that do force you to do things the hard way, so to speak. Um, one example that's incredibly nerdy is when I was trying to be better at leadership I was, a, I, I ran a, a ski club at my college and I was not good at it uh, because <laughs> I was, you know, I was not a good leader. Um, and so, you know, being on set directing things, got to be a good leader. And so what I did was playing uh, Counter-Strike, a first person shooter video game on the PC. Uh, I just immediately started saying, mm. all right, unless someone steps up, I'm going to like have plans because you have to, you can't just start barking people around. You have to have an idea of what you want to do. Um, and start right. getting people to do that stuff. And I would just do that like every day as a test of, or not a test, but like as, as repetitions, as leadership training, you know, cause then you learn when people don't yeah. want to work with you and shit. Um, but it's the same <laughs> thing with, with, uh, shooting analog is like, it's, it does force you to have a plan. It does force you to consider your frame. It does force you to like quote unquote, do things the hard way, but that makes shooting digital easier. Right. And I it's, think that's a valuable skill. I think so. And it's also, um, depend, I mean, I think it, it sort of defeats some people, um, you know, because no one's used to waiting for anything now. Um, but I think if you, if you accept it as like a sort of challenge, you know, if it is, you know, um, about sort of like trying to grow and trying to develop as a, as an artist, then it leaves a lot there because you can, um, or it contributes a lot there because, you know, you can, for example, with like a, a, a Leica, you know, it's a rangefinder. You're not even seeing through the lens at that point. So you, you're, you've like made it as difficult as it could possibly be to get a good photograph, especially with a moving subject. It's just like, all right, like I've done this with an SLR. Now let's see if I can nail focus by like judging off a little patch in the middle of like a little window that's sort of approximating what I'm going to be shooting with this lens. Um, and just sort of like keep sort of upping the, the ante to see, you know, how well you can do and you know, how, how tight your skill set can become. Um, and that's, yeah, like the only stuff I shoot digitally is product photos or stuff for Instagram. Um, that couldn't you know, be shot on film because it has to be a quick turnaround or something. But it's, it's, it's shooting digitally just feels like atrophying at this point. Um, it's just like this is, there's no resistance here. There's nothing to be mastered. So, you know, I'll just, I'll toss this off, be done with it, and then, you know, go shoot a real camera. 
There is, yeah, there is. That's a that's a great way to put it. Is there's no resistance. There's something about coming up against resistance in any art form or any job that is like healthy. Yeah. Yeah. But it's I like sugar. You know, free calories are not good for you. Exactly. And and you know if you're if you're like um, or if you're like lifting weights, you know muscle only comes from tearing your muscles. You know, it's, it's, it's tearing and regrowing and tearing and regrowing. You know, if you're just chilling out and not doing anything, you will never grow those muscles. Well, I learned that the hard way this year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, same. Well, we're coming up on an hour. I like to, uh, ask everyone, um, the same questions. Uh, first off, well, we kind of already covered it, which was, do you want to promote anything? Uh, which get your lenses rehoused at, Zero optic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we don't begrudge anyone going anywhere else. So I'd say get your lenses rehoused at zero optic if, you know, we seem like the best fit for you, the best sort of best option. Sure. And uh, finally, what uh, what is one thing, whether it be a lifestyle change or product or whatever, that uh, made you a better, normally cinematographer, which we can count that, um, or photographer or um in, even in your current career? Ooh. Recent or ever? Uh, prob- I, I think the spirit of the question is, is ever. But if recent comes to mind, sure. Like I know uh, um, Tobias Schleisler uh, said being kind, but then he also mm. said light meter. Uh, <laughs> I like that. Carrying around the light meter. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a pretty open-ended question. If I go all the way back, when I, when I started sort of practicing photography in high school, um, I, my parents both had shot a lot of photography. My dad, um, at one point, I think, had taught uh, photography at Virginia Tech. Um, and so for me, just like, shooting pictures and getting a roll of film back and looking at the prints was, was magical. Um, but where things really clicked was, um, you know, the, when you're growing up and you're taking pictures of things, it's usually like of stuff, you know, it's, it's your family members because there's like a birthday party or it's to document something very particular. Um, but the real interesting switch was, um, essentially, if the goal is more fine art photography or more, you know, an expression of something, um, my dad kept telling me like, you know, stop taking pictures like of things and, and start trying to make a coherent frame. Um, and I feel like that could be applied to a lot of stuff because it's, it's essentially, you know, considering something more holistically and considering how the whole thing presents rather than just trying to check off like the singular box. So even, you know, with rehousing, it's, it's taking care to make sure that the entire package is as good as it can be and presents as well as it can, rather than just, you know, taking pictures of things and making sure that the lens, you know, moves back and forth and accomplishes what it's supposed to. Yeah, no, I love that. That's, that's actually a great one. Cause I think there's, for me as a photographer, there was definitely, I think it came when I was shooting concerts, but there's definitely a switch between taking a picture of, for instance, the musician and, and taking a picture of the concert, like telling the story of what was happening. You know, if he's screaming, 
what you know i have so early on i have so many close-ups of guitarists right and it's like that's useless he could be anywhere <laughs> right he could have been in well, my backyard it's it's like a trap it's catnip because the lighting is always so crazy so it's just like this looks amazing no matter what you take you know what they're doing it looks incredible but yeah you, you don't have any sort of like other narrative to it or no context for the, for the frame yeah uh, well, that is that's the whole time, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, yeah, me too. Uh, we should uh, do it again, literally whenever we're starting. We're starting to build <laughs> up, repeat like a, a list of people who who would enjoy uh, coming back. So we'll just have to have you come back outside of Lens Month. Yeah, anytime. It's been an honor. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark Pelly, and the FNR Mapbox logo was designed by Nate Truax of Truax Branding Company. You can read or watch the podcast you've just heard by going to ProVideoCoalition.com or YouTube.com slash Owlbot, respectively. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>